What's up, advocates? Welcome to episode five of Make Them Hear You. I called on Jesus. We're going to explore the danger that our disjointed and underfunded patchwork of services places family members and loved ones in when we put all the responsibility on them for people who won't seek treatment on their own. In our first episode, we heard about Corey Miner Smith's terrifying experience of violence at her mother's hands during psychosis. Today, we're going to get into how our stubborn refusal to acknowledge the risk untreated psychosis can pose has effectively shifted what used to be a government responsibility onto the families of people with severe mental illness. And there isn't a backup. Spoiler alert. It happens on the backs of desperate and unsupported loved ones, left with few options and no good choices. For black and brown families, there are fewer services available and the stakes are even higher if they have to call 911. And the laws of your state might be making it even more dangerous. I'm talking today to Neve Green about her experiences with her son in Georgia. We'll also be talking again with Thurman Gillis, a mental health counselor from New Jersey who specialized in first episode psychosis for his clinical perspective on first episode psychosis. Nieve once called her son her perfect genius child. She was filled with joy the day he left home to join the Marines. But a year later, he was back on her doorstep, mysteriously discharged. Within months of coming back home, they experienced a preventable tragedy. Now, only a few years later, Nieve uses her hopeful and determined spirit to put her son's life back together. Statistically, individuals with the diagnosis of severe mental illness are more likely to be victims of violence, which includes individual and institutional victimization, medical negligence, and suicide. In fact, this is probably the first statement you'll hear in any news story involving an incident of violence allegedly perpetrated by a person with a diagnosis of mental illness. And while it is true and absolutely is important to emphasize, it's only half of what the research says on the subject. The other half is this. Severe mental illness that is untreated actually is correlated with an increased risk of violence, increased risk for suicide, victimization, being unhoused, and pretty much every other type of horrible outcome we fear too. But yes, violence is something that can come from untreated psychosis. While I definitely do understand the reluctance of well-meaning advocates to acknowledge this reality, when we're fighting so hard to have our loved ones seen as human beings, we should not be placing caregivers in danger. Certainly not without help or support or even training. But we do, routinely, and sometimes this is how preventable tragedies happen. I asked Thurman to talk about what he sees in his clinical practice. That's not the first time I've heard that. If you could imagine, we have had clients who come in with that same story. We had a client who came in and they attacked their mother and their brother because they thought they were demons trying to drag them to hell. As far as like assessing for risk in those situations, one of the things about schizophrenia psychosis, you don't know unless you know. Our goal today is to illuminate, not sensationalize, what likely happens to cause someone to become violent to others when they have a diagnosis of severe mental illness that goes untreated. Because what most of this violence has in common 
is that it could have been prevented. There are always opportunities to prevent violence. There are usually clear signs that support is needed. They may become suspicious. They may become more agitated around you, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to attack you, right? That's just a manifestation of this diagnosis is that it can be suspicion. It can be aggression or agitation. Families have to keep an eye out for these certain things. And if a person's baseline is suspicion, but now they're becoming really aggressive and they're not eating, and everything is poison. Like if they're above their baseline at that point Mm. or below, depending on how you look at it, then that might be a sign that you need to call for help, like call for other services to help you. One of the most important things a family can put into place is a plan. You have a plan for these things. And it's great to make this plan when your loved one is in the right state of mind, lucid enough to have this conversation about when I say this or I don't do this, then it could be a sign of this and I need this in order to help. If you have that type of action plan and try to line those symptoms up for things that might be happening, then it's easier for a family to respond to it, right? So if it's like, if I don't eat for two days in a row, then that's a sign that I need help. And the best way you can help me is to have a conversation with me about it. Or the best way to help me is to help make a therapy appointment, a follow-up therapy appointment, whatever it is. I agree with Thurman that the best plan for care is one that is informed and led by our loved ones. But when our loved ones are not aware that they are ill, they see no need to make a plan. Or if they like Nieve, don't recognize that what they're seeing is a first episode of psychosis. They won't know they need to make one either. The make a plan idea is great when it's workable, but it isn't enough, and we shouldn't be relying 100% on family members. Nieve's son was discharged from the Marines because of some obvious signs of the onset of severe mental illness. When that institutional setting have been an easier place to figure out what was happening. There are doctors in the military, but no, the military washed their hands of this responsibility and basically said to Neve, this is your problem now. Listeners, I want to provide a quick warning that parts of Neve's story might be difficult to hear. Use your best judgment. So let's talk about the deployment. Take me back a few years ago when we thought that EJ was joining the military and going to be living out his dream. Oh, that was the best day of my whole entire existence. It was just beautiful. I was like, okay, yes. You know, my thing is like, I have this genius boy, 4.1 GPA, good in math and science. He had just won the National Scholastic Medal of Honor in math and science. So I'm on this high hog. He was in the ROTC, and I was just super proud, Mom. I get a call. It says U.S. Department of whatever. He was like, yeah, there was an incident, and we had to move because of some behavioral issues that he was experiencing. Mm-hmm. And they were just calling to let me know that he was moved, and they gave me his new stuff, you know, like the mailing letters and all that kind of stuff, and they sent back the information. And it was like, well, when, he's, when he moves, he'll be able to call you. And I'm thinking, oh, okay, you know, no problem as long as nothing has happened to him or whatever. 
whatever, you know, because they really couldn't go into deep, deep detail of what had happened. I think it was maybe a few more months after that, I get a knock on the door. It's my son at the door. <laughs> I'm like, uh, what are you doing here? He's like, I got, um, he said, I, had to, I got kicked out. So he got discharged. And I said, well, why did you get discharged? And he didn't want to really go into the whole situation. But I think when he got discharged, he had to go meet with some people to explain his discharge letters and stuff like that. An individual with a diagnosis of mental illness is not allowed to serve in the military. It's that simple. Considering the amount of veterans diagnosed with PTSD and other mental health disorders caused by the very nature of being in the military, I guess I expected more understanding and acceptance. Of course, you got this Ottenberg discharge for fighting because he would beat up the guys in the shower. Mm. He felt that the guys, every time he took a shower, that the guys were watching him and were trying to molest him, so he would beat up the guys in the shower. These are the symptoms that Thurman advises us to watch out for. Suspicion, agitation, and aggression. These symptoms do not mean that someone is prone to violence. Not at all. They represent a baseline, and losing touch with that baseline means our loved ones continue to get worse. So then after he got home, I think he got kind of sad because military has always been his kind of dream thing to do. And so I think it kind of put him in a little bit of a sadness or depression. So that day of the accident, he was working... I was working, he would work days, I would work nights, and it had been weeks and weeks and weeks since we had hung out, and I actually had a day off. The whole day, I was thinking, oh my goodness, me and him, we're going to go hang out. So when he gets home that day, when he walks in the house, I said to him, boy, come up here and take a shower. I said, I have a surprise for you. I said, I want to take you, and let's go hang out. I said, but you got to take a shower first. I said, because you smell horrible. He hadn't bathed? No, he hadn't bathed. This is a baseline point. This is where many families know something is wrong. From here is when our loved ones need services. There is no need to wait. Six states, Alabama, Delaware, Georgia, Oklahoma, Pennsylvania, and Tennessee still have an outdated requirement that harm to self or others be imminent for a person to qualify for inpatient commitment. So kind of like a backstory, like where we live at, I was really kind of friendly with the maintenance people. And the lady, she would tell me, she was like, hey, you know, your son's outside walking around, talking to himself with his shirt and stuff off. And I'm thinking, nah. I'm like, nah, not my kid, wrong kid. You know, nah, not my kid. I said, he he knows better than that. So that had happened a couple of times and I was like, nah. So then that I had the day, I was like, you know, maybe, you know, we're at dinner, we'll talk about it and see you know, what's really going on with that situation. So like I said, that day he was just stinky. He was more than, he was more than just a stinky boy. You know oh. what, a, you know what, a, you got a brother. No, you know what a yeah. stinky boy <laughs> um, It was interesting. I was living in New York when my brother was at his, for the long periods of psychosis. And so living in New York, you would walk through <laughs> where they hadn't picked up the trash in days. And then mm-hmm. you would encounter people who lived there and you would go, oh, I know that smell. I come home and my brother smells that way. 
Bathing can take on many different meanings for individuals experiencing symptoms of untreated severe mental illness. This can happen because of delusions, hallucinations, paranoia, and more practically, the lack of connection to reality-based timelines, priorities, and comfort levels. In some states, the inability to prioritize bathing, food, clothing, and shelter is enough for medical intervention. Culturally, we have little sympathy for people who don't conform to hygiene. We kick them out of public places with no concern for what might be helpful to them. We demand their conformity while dismissing their ability to access well-being. It was something my mom had not even been bringing up in the cause of her worry. And it was kind of like, oh my goodness. And my family, I saw their routine about how, how they were walking around him. Like how he had carve-outs in the home in times of day and everybody was just kind of silent about it. And mm -hmm. I, I saw that they were living a very different life from what I was used to. And it was all mm -hmm. like kind of steering clear of his psychosis. And mm -hmm. so I, I know what you mean. And if you're missing each other because you're not working on the same schedule, you, you mm -hmm. miss those things. I, I understand that completely. Yep. So that day, it was like really, really bad. So I told him, I said, hey, you know, come upstairs, take a shower. I said, I'm going to let you go first. And he yells down, hey, mom, I feel like there's worms or something crawling in my stomach. I said, so worms or something crawling in your stomach? I said, boy, did you eat something bad at work or whatever? He goes, nah, nah, nah. I said, okay. I said, we get ready to go to dinner. I said, maybe your stomach will settle. He goes, I have to tell you that I was smoking with these guys. Mm -hmm. At that moment, my heart just broke. So I just knew. I was like, okay, he's just high. You know, so baby, he's just high. I said, well, drink a Coca-Cola. That will help you come down off your high because my background is nursing. So I said, maybe if you drink a Coke, he'll come down. I said, well, while you drink a Coke, I'm just going to go ahead and jump in the shower. I think that's when all hell broke loose. Before I could even turn around, he's at the bathroom door where I am. And I'm, I'm like, what are you doing? I said, and why are your hands behind your back? And, you know, he's just, like, looking at me, like, totally out of it. Like, a look that, what are you looking at? Because cause you're not really looking. You know I know I mean? those he eyes, yes. A, he had, like, empty eyes. Like, the soul of him had just decided to just leave his body. And I, um, I said, uh, why are your hands behind your back? He's like, Mom. I just need a hug. And in my heart, I just knew. I was like, there's no way I can give him a hug. I said, Sonny. I call him Sonny. I said, Sonny, there is no way in my right mind I can consciously give you a hug with your hands behind your back. He says to me, well, why not? I said, well, you know, I really can't trust that right now. And at this point, now he's bouncing. I don't know if you've ever seen like a video game. He's bouncing like that side-to-side kind of like motion, you know, kind of like he's really antsy about mm. something. By this time, he had took off his clothes, and he's just standing there in his boxers. He's just sitting uh. there in his boxers with his hands behind his back, and I'm like, okay, this dude is tripping. In these moments, trust your intuition. Something feels wrong because something is wrong. Less eye contact is best, less negotiation, especially if you feel agitated or your loved one's expressing agitation. If you find yourself in this situation, leave it if you can. Try to make sure you have your phone, lock yourself in a room, closet, neighbor's house, or car. Take a walk and wait it out. If your loved one has a peer, contact them. 
If services are available, reach out to them. If you feel like you cannot establish safety, call 988 Crisis Response or decide if you should call the police. So he says to me, well, today is your day. Now I'm getting mad because you talking to me crazy now. And he was like, yeah, today is your day. Today is the day. And I'm thinking like, what? What are you talking about today is the day? I said, you better get out of my face. I said, you need to realize that you are talking to your mama right now. I said, I'm not one of these little hood rats that you be talking to in the streets. You know, now I'm mad. He's like, well, today's the day, and they told me to kill you. I'm going to kill you today. And he proceeded to start stabbing me. Ever since being discharged from the military, Nieve's son was declining mentally. She wasn't given any warning about his health. When a law requires imminent danger, moments like this become the only possible point of intervention. Not before. The moment when someone is about to die is when they can get help for untreated severe mental illness. He had an eight-inch serrated knife. Mm. He stabbed me twice in the abdomen, two in the left upper arm, one in the neck. And then at, by this point, we're, we're like, kind of like in a tussle, and I fell backwards into the tub. And at this point, he's stabbing me. So I managed to like push him. I was trying to get past him. That's, and that's how he got me in the arms. I was trying to get past him in the hallway. So he caught me in the hallway. And at this point, blood is just spewing everywhere. Like my abdomen is shooting blood. My arm is shooting blood. And my neck is shooting blood. So blood was just getting everywhere. So I lose my balance and I fall in the hallway. And he jumps on top of me. So I'm trying to hold him. He has this knife, this big knife that's bloody, and he's bloody all over the place. And my thumb had got detached at this point, and the knife just sliced my thumb to the bone. So, like, I'm looking at my hand, and my thumb is hanging at my wrist, and I'm on the ground. And he's like, you're going to die. He's like, I'm getting ready to kill you right now. Today is your day. You're going to die. I think God and my religion saved me that day. And I just was like, hey, son. I said, this is not how you want to live the rest of your life with the trauma of remembering that you killed your mom. I said, so let's just call, start calling Jesus. Call on Jesus with me. You know, and I'm just screaming, Jesus, 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 help us, Jesus. I'm screaming. And then, like, maybe the third or fourth time I called out Jesus, he just jumped. Hmm. He just jumped. He just jumped up off me. And I was able to sit up, and he ran outside. Without access to services, Nieve called on Jesus, and it saved her life. If you can't tell, I feel pretty strongly that an imminent danger requirement in a state's emergency treatment laws is unconscionable. I've seen it in action. I know what this has meant for my family. I know what it means for people in psychosis in general and especially what it means for black and brown people. Think about it. When would it actually have been possible to prevent EJ getting so sick that he tried to kill his own mother? Well, it would have been after symptoms started to appear to other people, but before his illness drove him to act out under whatever delusion he was wrapped up in. Maybe if our military was set up to diagnose and heal our soldiers who, through no fault of their own, become ill after enlistment, EJ might have been offered help at a time when he would have accepted it. That didn't happen. When he got home, he was already very ill. 
one of his symptoms was that he did not recognize that he was ill. So he was not going to seek treatment on his own. But even if Nieve had been able to see what was going on in her son's mind in Georgia, nobody can do anything at all to intervene at this point. When EJ isn't acting violent, Nieve can call services. But as long as her son does not want them, none will be offered. And even if it's clear that her son needs help, there will be no intervention of any kind until her son or she is in imminent danger. Imminent danger means life-threatening harm. It means if our sick loved ones are diagnosed, untreated, and clearly in psychosis, yet want to walk across the highway in traffic, our law enforcement and medical professionals must watch them take the first step off the shoulder and into traffic before they may intervene. Danger wasn't imminent until then. And when was danger imminent in this situation? When EJ had a knife in his hand and was advancing on his mother. Now, apart from it possibly being too late to save Nieve's life, you might notice that advancing on a person with a knife is a crime. Police, when they arrive, are likely to arrest EJ, not bring him to the hospital. And that's if he survives the encounter at all, because he has a knife in his hand at this point. So there you have it. George's imminent danger requirement pretty much means that you have to commit a crime before a very sick person or that person's loved one who might be in danger would qualify for medical intervention. The crime has to come first. This is exactly what criminalization of mental illness is. It isn't whatever decision the police make on the spot. It's the law that creates a system that ensures arrest instead of treatment. This breaks my heart for EJ. But can we also not forget about Nieve? Because the safety of those trying to cope with a loved one in untreated psychosis is almost never part of the conversation. Doesn't Nieve have a right to be unharmed in her own home while EJ's condition deteriorates? But I don't see how the laws of Georgia allow her to remain safe unless she kicks her beloved but very ill son out of the house and stays away from him entirely. And that doesn't prevent violence. It just prevents violence against Nieve. Is this really what we want? Because I definitely remember judgmental comments following the horrific death of Jordan Neely about his family not taking care of him, leading him to being unhoused. It would seem that what society wants is for someone in Nieve's situation to take on all the responsibility of saving her son from psychosis while not being allowed to save herself. And she's supposed to do it without any resources or training to provide care for a person in psychosis. We've built a system where Nieve has to call on Jesus to save her life because absolutely nobody else will. I discussed treatment assessment with Thurman. Well, let's talk about the side effects of those symptoms. You mentioned that harm wasn't always this physical violence that we see or think of like suicide or harm to yourself. You mentioned not eating. I do want to talk about when those symptoms turn into the harm that is against others or harm against you for your symptoms. So police will often harm you in the middle of psychosis because failure to follow instructions 
Right. Because you you appear to be a threat. Right. Or you may harm someone because of... Because they appear to be a threat. Because they appear to be a threat. Yeah. Yeah. They're thinking of something violent towards them or toward community or toward a neighborhood or whatever it is. But the facts are, chances are that person is probably going to be more harmful to themselves than they are to you. Yes, absolutely. And it's not a huge percentage of people diagnosed with schizophrenia who are violent. This is a myth. This myth, I don't know where it came from, but it came from somewhere. And it's a myth that people diagnosed with schizophrenia are violent. Right. And they will attack you. And that's not, that's not always the case. And again, don't get me wrong. Does it happen? Yes. I believe the myth persists in part because of deterioration. The fact that our loved ones are forced to wait for imminent danger means society watches our loved one decline into the myth. What it essentially means is we will only provide access to services when your loved one interferes with the lives of healthy people. My neighbors must have heard the ruckus and at this point the police outside and he's running. He's running with the knife. And I thank God, thank God, thank God to this day if I could ever beat the lady cop again that didn't shoot my baby, hmm. I owe her everything. So my neighbor was able to intersect him and knock the knife out of his hand. Now, this is all secondhand to me. But I could hear the lady cop telling him, stop, slow down. But like I said, all of it's coming secondhand to me because I can't visually see it because I'm in the hallway bleeding out. And he's outside naked. So I guess apparently he did drop it because she was like, I'm going to come close to you now. I heard her say, get on your knees, get on your knees. And she's like, I'm going to come close to you now. I'm going to come close to you now. And they cuffed him. Then the ambulance came. The, my neighbor came in to me. And she was like, oh, my God, I can't stay because there was blood everywhere, blood all in the bathroom, blood in the hallway. Woo, my baby. It was just a lot. So now the myth continues. The neighbors have had a traumatic experience with severe mental illness that they will remember forever. Not the genius son who happens to have a diagnosis of mental illness. Not the former Marine who made good after a setback. By forcing Nieve and her son to wait for imminent danger, they are forcing him to remain unwell when some amount of recovery is possible and time is of the essence. Once we get into years You've had your first episode psychosis and now you are fully immersed in recovery and not experiencing these symptoms or you're fully immersed in deterioration and constantly experiencing delusions, hallucinations. What are we talking about once we've moved on from identifying first episode psychosis or not? I think you asked this before and I don't think I was very clear on the answer, but you asked about the first episode of psychosis and what kind of differentiates that from longer term psychosis and schizophrenia. What really differentiates those two things is within first episode psychosis, typically it's within the first two years of someone's psychotic break or first episode or first break. And the reason why that's so important is because what the research has shown is that if you impact and implement the right services at the right time, you can drastically change the whole trajectory of the illness. And that right time frame, they believe, and what studies have shown is within two years. And the reason for that, it has to do with the gray matter in the brain. Now, gray matter in your brain is used for pretty much everything. It's used for our cognitive functioning, our gross motor skills, our fine motor skills, you name it, gray matter is probably involved in some way. And so what happens 
when someone has their first episode psychosis is they lose up to 12 cc's, which is the equivalent of 1% of the gray matter in your brain. And because gray matter is responsible for us kind of understanding what is real versus what's not, it's one of those key things. That's when you see this first break happen, right? That's when you see this kind of break from reality happen is because you're losing 1%. doesn't sound like that significant of an amount, but it is when it comes to gray matter. Well, I want all of my brain there. I don't want to lose any of it. So what happens is that once you have your first break, you lose that 1%. Okay, wait, wait, right there. Once you have the first break, you lose it. Do you lose it in the two years or right when it happens or whatever? When it happens. And subsequently, every break after that, you lose more. I've shared the data on brain deterioration hundreds of times in just about every talk or presentation I've given. But in that moment, while talking to Thurman, I realize I've never seen the specific barbaric nature of our medical injustice system. I finally pieced together that since I've known Nieve, Her son has had the chance to access recovery, and both systems simply kept it from him. I realize that every involuntary commitment can turn into services, and every arrest for severe mental illness can turn into a continuum of care, and we just refuse to create effective systems. This is where the myth begins, that people with a diagnosis of severe mental illness are more prone to violence, with our refusal to catch them before they fall. Essentially, what people see as a break is when someone has that break, right, that first break from reality when let's use something like paranoia. The FBI is calling me. They're after me because of X, Y, and Z. They keep bothering me. I know they're after me. There might be some agents. There might be agents in this family, whatever it is, right? That's a break. Now, through therapy, definitely medication, because what they found, too, is that the the combination of therapy and medication is really what helps. And that's pretty much across the board with any mental illness. Therapy, medication, support, these different community supports that you might have. When you may come to a point where you're able to say, you know what, the FBI might not be after me, right? You may still think it a little bit, but you're able to say it's possible that that is all in my mind and that may not be really happening. That's when you're done. That's when your first break has stopped. When you're able to come out of that and it's like, all right, this might not be happening at this time. Then... I don't know, maybe you stop taking your medication, right? Maybe you stop going to therapy, stop taking your medication, and all of a sudden it's like, boom, FBI is after me. And you can't tell me the phones are tapped. I'm not answering my phones. You don't call me, don't text me because the FBI is listening. When it becomes that, that can be considered another break because there was a time when those symptoms were at a lower level and you were able to say this might not be happening. And a lot of times if you keep having these breaks, so let's say your first break, you got on Risperdal, which is a antipsychotic medication. You're on Risperdal and those symptoms decrease and you're feeling okay, you're doing fine. You stop taking it. All of a sudden your symptoms increase again. You start feeling these things again and you start thinking these things again. And you get to the level where you have to be hospitalized and you have that second break. What research has shown is that when you're in the hospital or you come out the hospital, that Risperdal may not work anymore for you. Every break that you have may change the chemistry enough that those medications may not work for you anymore or the dosage of those medications won't work anymore. I've observed my loved one not coming out of that place consistently for an entire year. What type of damage are we talking about? 
So when someone goes untreated, in one of our assessments, there's a duration of untreated psychosis is what we call it. And when someone goes an amount of years without being treated, that does have significant, I don't know the percentage of the the gray matter that's lost, but that does have a significant impact on the level of gray matter and just the level of functioning in general of that person. And it does make it harder to seek treatment afterwards. And this is what happens when you have people who have a break when they're 20 years old, let's say, and they don't seek treatment because no one really knows. No one knows. Family doesn't know. People around them don't know. They don't know how to treat it. They don't know where to go. They don't know who to look for, whatever it is. They go untreated, keep going untreated. And a lot of times, unfortunately, these are people who end up on the street, in and out of hospitals, in and out of jail. And all of those years of being untreated, it makes it much harder than to treat that person because you have so many years of deterioration, essentially. As a lawyer, I tend to look at what we're doing about severe mental illness from a legal and rights-based perspective. But I have to tell you, listening to Thurman focus on this from a strictly medical and treatment perspective was extremely upsetting. Because our laws are not only criminalizing the symptoms of severe mental illness, they are actively preventing people who don't see their need to get treatment from having a chance to recover. For the small number of people who need intervention to get better, the laws in many states simply do not allow it. The revolving door nature of how treatment works in this country means we subject people to multiple psychotic breaks. And during each one, they literally lose brain matter. When we could throw everything we've got at the first episode of psychosis to make it the last episode of psychosis. Let's be honest, we rarely even do that for people who are actively volunteering for treatment, let alone those who resist it. Without any chance for timely intervention, Nieve and her son are now going to be punished for a lifetime. Punished through the criminal system and through the unspeakable trauma Nieve now has to live with every day. EJ received a conditional release. Due to the nature of his offense, an armed felony, the state was duty-bound to prosecute even though his victim, his mother, was not actively pressing charges. Through the conditional release, he would not face trial, but he was subject to the strict conditions of probation. Once released, EJ attempted to piece his life together. Some of this was required by his conditional release. Regular check-ins with the probation officer, housing, a job, but not medical treatment. Even though he was still battling with psychosis, the state did not help with housing so he moved in with his mother. While battling psychosis, EJ started a relationship and now has a young son, Caleb. While untreated, EJ shows signs of disconnection and paranoid behavior toward his son and could be triggered by a number of events, which led to EJ moving into an extended stay. While EJ is untreated, Nieve is her grandson's primary caregiver. They took me to Grady. I was in Grady for... 12 days. They had to open me up, of course. I had to have two blood transfusions, and that's it. So Grady saved my life. I have the scars that I live with every day, the big scar on my abdomen, the two scars on my arm. So I see those scars every single day. And I'm thinking, they need to have some kind of advocate to help me get some plastic surgery to get past this trauma, because I want to see this trauma every single day. I mean, I'm laughing, but you know, I'm like, it's serious. Because no matter what I do, I'm always going to see that trauma. You know, that 
I would think there would be like a specialist or something that would treat like trauma like that. So you don't have to deal with those type of things. Like I've heard stories of tattoo artists that mm-hmm. do stuff for women that have breast cancer that had their breasts removed. I mean, cover up their scars with um, tattoos or something. But my belly too big for a tattoo. No. <laughs> All bellies can have tattoos. <laughs> can. I'm just trying to make, like, make light of it, but I know mm-hmm. he's... I know he's apologetic of it. You know what I mean? That's the part, the part that kind of like still bothers me. Every now and then, he'll be like, Mom, did you eat something today? And I'll be like, yeah. He goes, well, I know, you know, because you use stomach, sometimes you have a hard time with eating stuff. And I'm like, yeah, but you know, your mama fat, so I don't have no problem eating. You, you have know? some so, long-term symptoms? Oh, yes. I've developed two hernias uh-huh. on my abdomen, and one of the hernias is pressing on my intestines. So therefore, it causes blockage or something. I'm I have to go have my stomach pumped because it makes me really sick. I'm not able to like pass certain foods or certain mm. things. And yeah. Did you ever hear from the military to see what they observed? Nope. 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 Did you not try to contact them? They sent me a letter saying that they owe him some money. Then I wrote them back talking about I would like to see his records so I could have him released to the courthouse here. And that was the last thing I got. The last thing you got to help them through his court process, not one single word, not one single word. But, you know, I've talked to some other people in the military and they say, oh, they're not going to do that. Unless they are court ordered to give any mm-hmm. information, they are not going to say a word. And I'm thinking, well, maybe that whole military thing was just too much. Maybe he saw something there or he experienced something. He was always very social. He was always very nice, always very kind, always very sweet. And it was like, well, were you mean to him? I'm thinking, no, I've never been mean to him ever. So that's what the court said to me. They was like, well, the only reason he reacted to you that way is because he was taking something out, taking his hurt out on me. But I'm thinking, I had never done anything to hurt my kid. I said, anybody who knows our relationship, they knew that I put him on the pedestal and there was nothing that he could ever do wrong ever in life. Who told you that? The people in court. What people in court? People in court don't know anything about severe mental illness. The DA told me that. They know nothing about... I was a person in court as a public defender. There's no severe mental illness training for court systems by lawyers and judges. They don't have to know a damn thing. As a public defender, I was only required to know the law. Nothing about a diagnosis. Getting my client's treatment that wasn't wrapped in punishment was impossible. Even in mental health court, the law mattered more than the diagnosis. The only way out of this is for the justice system to put justice first and advocate for mental health. Did he ever have competency restoration? What does that mean? When they sent him to get an evaluation by an actual medical doctor. Oh, that was all bullshit. I'm just going to tell you that right now and excuse my friend. The problem with competency restoration is that it's a tool for the court system. It uses a medical process for the purposes of conviction, not treatment. If your loved one thinks they are from another planet, every answer from there should guide the status of their mental health. But that's not the logic used in courts. They put him in Georgia, the regional, for a little while. And you know what they told him? They told me after he got his assessment, they told me that he was fully aware of what he was doing. He was totally competent and he did not need to be in a mental institution. That's what they told me. So they send him back to the prison. In the court system, Nieve's son would have been asked something like, who is the president? Do you understand the charges? Is it wrong to stab your mother? 
The fact that he knows he is on an intergalactic mission and therefore had to do something wrong to save the world would not matter. This is ableism. We dismiss the reality of his illness. This method does not serve anyone. It doesn't help him, his mother, or our community. It keeps everyone in harm's way. Yes, I'm extremely sorry about that, and you should be very angry about that. The only standard that the court uses is that he understands the charges, and they can make their evaluation from there. Usually there's a right from wrong standard, which, if you speak to any actual medical professionals, that doesn't hold with being able to connect to reality, volition. There are so many different things. So the court makes up a lot of legal fictions to be able to put a square peg in a round hole. No one knows why he is sick. I want you to rest assured with that. No one knows why he did what he did. He may not even know. What it takes to get to that space is a lot of actual treatment, not just medication, but a full continuum of care. A doctor who you know and trust, a social worker who you know and trust, peers, clinicians, and we haven't gotten him into that system yet. You have a bunch of non-medical professionals telling you things about criminal activity and you cannot use those to evaluate where you are with your son. It is just not possible. And it's not even fair for them to give you this information and expect you to be able to make sound decisions with it. Well, yep, that's what they told me. They told me it was pretty much my fault that I had done something to traumatize him to bring him to that point. You know, the tricky thing about severe mental illness is for the most accurate diagnosis, the patient has to have some sort of insight. They have to be able to tell you, this is what happened to me from 13 to 23. They have to be able to give and take. And right now we don't have the system that is proactive to get him where he needs to be. We have a system that will only react to when his symptoms cause an emergency. It's a full expertise that is supposed to happen in these kinds of diagnosis. And the court system is not where that expertise happens. Not at all. Okay. How do I get somewhere to somehow or somebody that can help me get him the care that he needs so that he can be a better productive person in life? Well, because of Georgia's imminent standard, it's going to be a little bit tricky. I am going to do a little research. There are a lot of different kinds of programs. He will need a certain willingness. He will need a certain, I will show up even if I feel like it's not immediately helpful because this is a long game that we're in. It's a long process not to diminish it and call it a game. Does he at least recognize I am a person with a diagnosis of severe mental illness or schizophrenia? Oh no, oh no, no ma'am. Why does he think he stabbed you? He feels that he is from another planet. They sent him here to get away from the people that are chasing him and the people that are chasing him are from a whole nother Dimension. Do you have a safety you know, plan? No. We advise safety plans for all of our families who have had experiences with violence. Just a way, you know, to get out the house, phone numbers to call, a bag to grab, anything like that. Locking yourself in a bathroom because yours is ongoing. Honestly, and I know this may be stupidity on my part, but I don't think he would hurt me again. The last thing I want to do is give Nieve more bad news. But as Thurman and I have talked about, Nieve's son, first episode psychosis, has passed. He has remained untreated and consistently in psychosis. 
He does not suddenly get better from here without treatment. And because he has caused harm to others in the past, it's an indicator that he will cause harm in the future without help. Well, you're a mom, and that's what you all do. I think he's just always on protection mode when it comes to me. Mm -hmm. Well, that's your mom hat. I would just advise another lens. Like, always have your mom lens on. That's okay. He is your baby. But there's another angle that you need to connect to. It's just the angle of the reality you have. I can put you in contact with other family members who have experienced this harm situation. As caregivers do, Nieve has created her own assurance. She knows she has no one to call on in a crisis, so she decides there simply will not be another. This is common among caregivers. Some caregivers plan to allow their loved ones to harm them. Others plan to never call the police no matter what. This is what happens when we leave families without resources and waiting for imminent danger. It's a reoccurrence where the outcome is not surviving, but we have parents who have children who have caused harm to their own parents or to somebody in their house. Twice? More than twice? Yes, yes, yes. Usually the second time. Don't tell me that that breaks my heart. Oh, I'm so sorry. This is why Nieve, as the single and sole caregiver in her son's life, is so harmful. Family harm is statistically most likely to occur. The research shows that her son, without intervention, will continue to harm himself and others. And as I edit this episode, after sending Nieve Dr. Javier Amador's book, I'm Not Sick and I Don't Need Help, after connecting her directly to a NAMI advocate, her son gets arrested. He is released and he's back home with Nieve, with no services, and in the place of their shared trauma. So usually it's a pattern of aggression or impulsivity, and parents say the same thing over and over. They were fine. I'm not scared of my child. I won't be afraid. Or we're trying to get him help. We're trying to get them help. And sometimes there are families like yours where it comes from nowhere. And then there are families like, well, they were getting agitated and more agitated, and then it happened. So there's just no way to know. But there's just different ways to look at it to keep you and the rest of your family safe. So I would suggest you go directly to his parole officer and see what kind of mental but health he resources. Not, he, he, won't give me the, he won't give me the information. And because he is an adult, I have no right to his information. You do if there is a threat. If there is the threat. Because his threats of violence are in his history and documented, and you have other occurrences that show active psychosis, they should be able to at least listen to you. So if they won't give you information, you need to go prepared with a stack of information to say, these are my observations, a child is involved, this parole needs to be connected to mental health care. It has to be. And they need to be made aware of that. No matter if they won't reciprocate information back, as much as okay, they so, check in with him, you should be checking in with them. Okay, so here's my question. Mm-hmm. So now that puts me in kind of a sticky situation because now if they pick him up, he has drugs in his system. So guess what? Now he goes to jail. We have laws in place to punish drug use but provide very little support to recover. When faced with proof that punishment isn't working, we increase the punishment. More fines, limited career choices, movement restrictions. Nieve is right. They will arrest him for drugs. And her reluctance is also correct. Incarceration is traumatic. 
It's not treatment. Each time her son will be less likely to seek help by incarceration, less likely to seek help and further susceptible to psychosis. It seems like what you're explaining is he's in an active psychosis. And that is the part that you can bring it to their attention and they can make whatever choice they want with it. But they will have this information that if there are any community services whatsoever that they can integrate into the parole probation process that he needs them, they are in dire need to talk about incorporating them. The mess started from the first beginning when he went back to prison. They told me that, oh, no, he'll be safe. We'll just pick him up. The mental health people said, oh, no, we'll just come pick him up. You know, the 1-800 crisis line, oh, no, we got it. We'll got it. We'll take care of him. What Nieve is talking about is the Georgia crisis line. As of July 2022, mental health crisis calls to police will be routed directly to crisis response professionals. With education and time, people will be calling 988 to be connected to crisis services. But Nieve is talking about a particular piece that leaves families dealing with severe mental illness and anosognosia out in the cold. We live in crisis daily because there is no one to call until there is an emergency. Crisis response is for individuals who volunteer for treatment. Our families must wait for emergency, which means police, and police don't provide treatment. As long as there's an imminent standard, they can't come get him. It's always police. So they can come. And I do want you to think about incorporating the crisis line because they can come and speak to him and they are a non-uniform clinician-based, social work-based unit. The problem is they can only go so far. If he doesn't want help, they can't give him help. And where it seems like he is in his psychosis, he would be paranoid about people coming into his space. But it's still worth a try. If you've not called them before, if he ever talks about the astral projection, that's the perfect time to call. Perfect time to call. Because oh, we, that's all the time then. That's all the time. We know that's not reality-based. If you ever see him responding to voices, that is a perfect time to call. Because maybe they can create that entry point, create that paper trail, create a rapport. You just never know. Right now, where we are is kind of living in crisis, waiting for an emergency. That is where you are. And past indicators of violence are indicators of future violence in your situation. Because the timeline is very short. This is all still very recent. And there's mm-hmm. no treatment here. There's no treatment they get, here. They gave him a vilify. Okay. But he won't take it. He said because they're trying to alter his mind. It's a mind altering dove. And his reality... There is nothing wrong with his mind. Right, right. Nieve stays hopeful that she will be able to connect with someone to call on for help. She hopes that she will be able to convince her son to get into treatment. But until she can reach her son, she focuses on her and her new grandson. How do you all stay hopeful on this journey of healing? I am very optimistic in this situation because even with all of this dark cloud that's covering my family, Currently, there is a beautiful silver lining. His name is Caleb Josiah, who has brought hope to me and my family. And I know that with him being in our life, he is going to enrich us all. He's going to take me on a new journey of continuing to be strong and healthy and get mentally better for myself. And hopefully, the joy that I am radiating and that Caleb is radiating. Maybe it'll radiate into his father and to bring him into a more cohesiveness about life. 
So that is what keeps us hopeful. Our new being, our new life is what makes us want to continually move forward because there is strength and growth at the end of this tunnel. Beautiful. Anything else you want to leave me with? Final thoughts, summaries, anything? As far as a summary, I would just want like any mother to know, I'm trying not to get emotional, that the fight is really not easy. Mm. I would never come on here and tell any mom, dad, sister, brother, cousin, that the fight is easy. You have to fight every single day, 24 hours a day, you have to fight for your loved one, whether it be in person, in spirit, in mental clarity, or in just being healthy yourself. You have to fight every single day, every single moment. Every single cell in you has to want. Every single cell in you has to need some clarity and better living. Because the moment that you give up, the moment that you stop fighting, that is the moment that things will just fall from up under you. Mm -hmm. So I encourage every person, mom, dad, sister, brother, victim, or caregiver of a victim, to just, when your person is feeling sad or your person is feeling blue, push, push, just not an over push, but just a soft, gentle push. If there's nothing but, hey, you can have your moment today, but in a few minutes, take a deep breath. It's okay to cry, but take a deep breath and look how far you've come. Because that's what I have to tell myself every day. When I look in the mirror after I come out of the shower and I see those scars and I get down and I get blue on myself and I tell myself, look at where you've come from though. I am able to be a grandmother. So I encourage people to keep pushing, keep moving. If you have to cry, cry. If you have to drink a margarita, drink a margarita. But no, nothing ever is going to develop if you stay in the dark. Nothing grows in the dark. Everything needs light. So if you're going to be happy, if you want to be stronger, you have to always have that little bit beam of life, of light and life and love, and push for it every day. So that is my closing statement. Push forward and continue to love and grow and the strength. Eventually, things are going to get better because I'm very optimistic because I'm getting better every day. I'm getting stronger every day. I'm getting wiser every day. And I'm embracing the reality every single day that one day, this will no longer be our reality. Mm. This will be our past. That's my statement. I can bottle that up and sell it. Yay. That was wonderful. <laughs> God, thank you so, yeah. so much for sharing your story with me. Just everything. It, it's amazing. Nieve's story is not over. It's still being written. Her son, still in his early 20s, has a chance. The law, however, stands in the way of his treatment. There is something you can do. Make sure lawmakers hear you. During the 2020 legislative session, the Georgia legislator had the chance to simply strike the word imminent from the language of the law 
and they refused. The impact of that decision stands directly in the way of Nieve and her son's livelihood. No other illness requires we get worse before we get access to treatment. No other illness requires police. Nieve deserves to call on her community for timely and effective long-term health care and save calling on Jesus for love and faith. Thank you for joining us on Make Them Hear You. Please visit treatmentadvocacycenter.org to learn more about the barriers to treatment in your state and what you can do to advocate for change. I'm Sabah Muhammad. Until next time, only good things. <laughs>